Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Thank you for your continued support in making our companion book number one bestseller on Amazon. If you are still looking to buy the book, the link is in show notes. This is the final stretch of Abside. This is officially Abside week. So we hope that you all are hanging in and soaking in the last bit of information. This is our last and final episode, and it covers a lot of miscellaneous but important topics. So Jason, take it away. Okay, so this episode of the Outside Review, we're going to be doing surgical potpourri, which is uh, basically some some not insignificant topics, but things that don't really fit into uh, another Outside Review. So things we're going to be covering are peritoneal dialysis catheters, which gets asked a lot for some reason, uh, soft tissue sarcomas, and melanoma. So let's get started with peritoneal dialysis catheters. Like I said, this is something that I wasn't that familiar with. Uh, I didn't do many of them during residency, but I certainly got uh, asked about them in board situations. Um, and it, certainly it's on score and it's uh, on all the practice questions. So it's something that's important to know. So here are the things you need to know for test-taking purposes. So uh, something that's often asked is contraindications for peritoneal dialysis catheter. Kevin, what are the contraindications to peritoneal dialysis catheters? So if a patient has an active abdominal infection, if they have an uncorrectable abdominal wall mechanical defect, if they have active Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, if they have recurrent diverticulitis, or they have severe protein malnutrition, all of these would be reasons you would not want to put a permanent catheter um, for dialysis. And perhaps more importantly, what's not a contraindication? So prior abdominal surgery, intra-abdominal foreign body, such as a gastric band or aortic graft, uh, VP shunts, gastrostomy tubes, or ostomies. Yeah, so ostomies, G-tubes, VP shunts, um, any type of foreign body is not a contraindication to a PD catheter. Um, however, something like an uncorrectable abdominal wall mechanical defect is. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, so you need to know that. What, what about hernias, Kevin? So hernia should be repaired prior to or at the time of peritoneal dialysis catheter insertion, and you definitely want to avoid any intraperitoneal mesh. Okay, uh, so uh, Wu, can you walk us through um, the placement of a peritoneal dialysis catheter? What are some general insertion guidelines? Yeah, so first, the catheter tip is placed in the pelvis, and sometimes there is suture fixation to the bladder or pelvic peritoneum. Second, the catheter is tunneled through the rectus sheath, and there's going to be a deep cuff inside the sheath. The superficial cuff is going to be two centimeters from the skin exit site. So again, there's that tunnel deep cuff inside the rectus sheath. The superficial cuff is two centimeters from the skin exit site. What are some principles or some methods to reduce uh, postoperative catheter dysfunction? Yeah, so you can do laparoscopic lysis of adhesions if needed. Uh, you could do rectus sheath tunneling and omentopexy. All three of these should be performed when placing the laparoscopic peritoneal dialysis catheter for the lowest malfunction rate. Um, so, uh, Kevin, you can either perform these laparoscopically or you can do them uh, open or you can do them with fluoroscopy. Um, what's the preferred method? The preferred method is the laparoscopic uh, insertion, but the patient has to be able to tolerate general anesthesia to be able to undergo the laparoscopic. And that's specifically so you can do those three things above to, to, to give you the lowest malfunction rate. That's the lysative adhesion, rectus sheath tunneling, tunneling and uh, uh, omentopexy. Okay. How, who, what about the open and fluoroscopic placement? Yeah. So these are better for patients that can only uh, tolerate local anesthesia. So that you can consider open or fluoroscopy for these patients. Yeah. So laparoscopic, if, if you're able to, is, is the preferred approach. How about when can you start using these things? 
typically wait two weeks uh, post-insertion to use peritoneal dialysis catheters, um, but you can consider using them earlier if there's an urgent need for dialysis. Okay, so let's say you're having problems with your peritoneal dialysis catheter. It's malfunctioning. What uh, what approach do you want to take to try and, and fix that problem? Yeah, so first steps, try flushing, uh, thrombolytics through the catheter, and fluoroscopic guided wire manipulation. Uh, if those fail, then you may need laparoscopy with adhesiolysis, uh, omentectomy versus omentopexy. Uh, and if that fails, you might need repositioning. Yeah, so with everything, start with less invasive and go more. So try flushing, thrombolytics to the catheter, try some fluoroscopic manipulation, and then potentially may need to reposition it laparoscopically. Uh, one thing I just want to point out, a commonly asked question is the ASA classification. And when we're talking about what do these patients qualify laparoscopic versus open, uh, all patients that have that are basically going to qualify for this have uh, kidney failure. So they are all automatically ASA4. Great point. Okay, let's move on to uh, soft tissue sarcoma. Uh, so, Kevin, how do these patients typically present? So, often uh, they grow silently, only coming to the patient's attention if they cause pain or are visually distorting. Um, or sometimes incidental trauma will bring attention to the area. Um, and this is why, unfortunately, retroperitoneal sarcomas are typically very large at the time of presentation. Okay. Uh, how about some prognostic factors, uh, Wu, for uh, soft tissue sarcoma? Yeah, those would be size, location, and grade. Size, location, and grade. Um, location's a big one. They actually have different uh, staging criteria based on their location, and this is one of those ones where, where grade is obviously very, very important. Soft tissue sarcoma can be a little confusing because there are so many different types. They can really originate from any mesenchymal cell. It'd be fat, muscle, bone, nerve, vessels. So there's many, many, literally 100, over 100, I think 140-something uh, subtypes of sarcoma. So it can be confusing, but there's only a few that you really need to know for board situations. What's the uh, the most common subtype of soft tissue sarcoma? That would be malignant fibrous histiosarcoma or Mal MFH. Malignant fibrous histiosarcoma is the most common type. Uh, liposarc is a close second and lyomyosarc is a close third. Um, that's for adults. Kevin, how about in kids? So by far and away, rhabdosarcoma is the most common in kids. And what's unique about that? These, unfortunately, grow very fast and metastasize quickly. What else is unique about uh, rhabdomyosarcoma? Right. Given the fact that they grow fast, this makes them sensitive to radiations. This is one of the few sarcomas that respond uh, somewhat to radiotherapy. Yeah, so those go hand in hand. They're fast, they're aggressive, they metastasize quickly, but because of that, they're uh, more sensitive to radiotherapy. So usually uh, the, the treatment of these patients is a multimodality uh, therapy with surgery plus uh, chemoradiation. Uh, okay, so let's say you have that patient that comes to you who notices uh, a mass on their leg. They didn't notice it until after they hit it, you know, on something they tripped. Um, but how do you want to work that patient up? What's your, what's your, let's say, what's your imaging that you would like to get? So in general, you're looking at soft uh, tissues. MRI is the best uh, modality to evaluate this. And you want to evaluate the sarcoma in relation to vital structures. Yeah, so MRI is really going to, for these soft tissue sarcomas, MRI is really going to be your imaging modality of choice. It's, it's best for characterizing. Some can be pretty d definitively diagnosed based on their imaging criteria alone with MRI. And it's very important to know those adjacent structures and, and, and how the tumor relates to those. Well, what's the role of uh, biopsy, Wu? Yeah, so all extremity masses should be biopsied and reviewed by an experienced pathologist. Uh, the key with biopsy if sarcoma is high on the differential is to do an excisional biopsy and orient it longitudinally to facilitate the future resection. Bear in mind that you could see along the biopsy site, so 
you really have to plan to excise the biopsy tract at the time of resection. So ideally, the biopsy is going to be done by the surgeon who would do the definitive resection if it's confirmed to be malignant. Yeah, so you want to get a biopsy, um, but you have to be careful with it. This is one of those tumors where seeding is, is, can be a real problem. So you have to plan your biopsy with the uh, definitive surgery in mind. So you need to plan the incision. You need to plan the approach. Um, there is w- one important uh, kind of caveat to this, and that would be retroperitoneal um, liposarcomas. If they're very, remember how I said on MRI, a lot of these have very characteristic findings. If you have a retroperitoneal tumor that's not easily accessible uh, for biopsy and it's characteristic, you can go ahead and resection without biopsy, but I think that would be uh, one of the few uh, exceptions to that rule. Um, in general, Kevin, what are, so you have your biopsy, you've confirmed whatever subtype of soft tissue sarcoma, what are some general principles, surgical principles for resection? So like you said, the standard treatment is resection for uh, sarcomas. You want to do longitudinal excisions, arbitrary two to three centimeter margin of normal tissue but you must balance this with the oncologic resection with good and good functional outcome. If there is a fascial planes are encountered, they should be removed with the specimen. And you want to resect periosteum if a budding bone. Right. So you want to try and get two to three centimeter margins. However, if it's a budding and important structure, uh, you, you, you have to kind of balance that. Do you uh, get this huge oncologic resection? Or, but what's your functional recovery or functional outcome of that limb going to be? So yeah, it's a balance. Um, so we, we know that radiotherapy improves local control when it comes to sarcoma. So who gets radiotherapy? Let's first start with who doesn't get radiotherapy. So if you have a small low-grade tumor that's resected with two centimeter margins, you generally do not need radiotherapy. Good. Okay. So who uh, doesn't? If you have close margins or for tumors greater than five centimeters, they get radiotherapy for sure. Yeah. So let's say they're, it's a budding that important nerve and you peel it off and you can't get your two centimeter margin. That's somebody that needs radiotherapy. Or if you have those large tumors, five centimeter is generally the, the accepted cutoff for getting radiotherapy. So we'll hear, you'll hear people talk about uh, pre, like neoadjuvant radiotherapy for sarcomas versus adjuvant therapy, for, post-operative uh, radiotherapy for sarcomas. Uh, it's a little bit controversial. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. What's the pros and cons of each? Yeah, so uh, preoperatively, you may have a higher wound complication rate, but that may also allow you to downstage a large or high-grade tumor. Uh, and so you have to really weigh that uh, the risks and benefits of the wound complication versus the possible benefit of downstaging. Yeah, so I don't think that's going to show up, on certainly not on the ab site. Um, in, in an oral board scenario, it might show up. You just have to know that that's just be aware of the controversy um, and be able to discuss the pros and cons of each. Um, uh, Kevin, what about uh, chemotherapy? Who gets chemotherapy? So in general, sarcomas are not very sensitive to chemotherapy. However, some subtypes are more sensitive than others. Yeah, what are those subtypes? We mentioned one. You mentioned the rhabdo, right, in kids. What's the other one? The Ewing sarcoma. Yeah, also it affects kids. So Ewing sarcoma, rhabdo, myosarcoma, those are ones that are more sensitive uh, to chemotherapy. But as you say, uh, most sarcomas are not very sensitive to either chemo or radiotherapy. Um, so, but ideally, you know, this is one of those things that uh, patients are getting referred for clinical trials for chemotherapy. Um, in reality, on the boards, uh, it's a get, getting a little of the weeds and, and probably not going to ask you about that. Um, Wu, what's the most common site of metastasis for soft, for soft tissue sarcoma? The lung. Okay. Talk to me about uh, metastectomy. When, is, when can you resect these metastases? 
Yeah, so there are three criteria. So first, the primary tumor has to be controllable. Second, there has to be no extrathoracic metastatic disease. And third, an R0 resection has to be possible. Right. So if you can resect the primary tumor, they have no extrathoracic metastatic disease, and you're able to get an R0 resection um, to performing the metastectomy. Um, and this is important because, uh, because why, Kevin? Because what's the five-year survival if you do that, if you have an R0 resection with metastatic disease? You still have a 30% five-year survival. 30% five-year survival. That's pretty good with a metastectomy. So um, so definitely that, that's one of those things you need to know. Uh, let's talk briefly about um, it, it falls under the category of sarcoma, although we often don't think about it that way, but it's GIST, the gastrointestinal stromal tumor. It's a subtype of sarcoma. Uh, Kevin, tell me a little bit, what do we need to know about GIST? Right. So these are primarily uh, found in the stomach. They can also be found in the small bowel. Um, they'll have a C-kit expression. Uh, marker is CD117. Um, and so you want to resect these with a negative microscopic margin. Um, these, there's no need for local or regional lymphadenectomy in these patients. Right. That's important. A negative microscopic margin. So, you know, we talked about sarcomas needing this wide local, you know, this two centimeter, you know, gross margin uh, with just all you need is a microscopically negative margin. Um Okay. What about some adjuvant therapy for GIST? Is there anything out there and uh, who gets it? Yeah, there's a great uh, immunologic therapy, imantinib, also known as Gleevec. It's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, this is for patients deemed to be intermediate or high risk for recurrence or patients with metastatic GIST. And then the, so the, who you, you will give this to is generally, I, I remember five and five. So if, it's, if the GIST is greater than five centimeters or it has more than five mitoses per uh, high-power field, this is when you'd want to consider uh, adjuvant Gleevec. Yeah, that's that's a good way of remembering it. Um, in reality, there's multiple prediction models for who gets Gleevec. Um, I, I think there's some um, recommendations out there that recommend it for greater than three centimeters, so a little bit smaller, five, five centimeters greater than three centimeters, or definitely greater than five mitosis per, high, per 50 high-power field. But that's good generally to know, greater than three to five centimeters or greater than five uh, mitosis per 50 high-power fields get Gleevec with the GIST. Um, okay, moving on, woo melanoma. Uh, what are some risk factors for melanoma? So that would be sun exposure, uh, UV light, uh, noting that UVB is worse than UVA. UVB uh, is bad, B for bad. UVB is worse than UVA. Yeah, fair skin, uh, family history, and multiple atypical nevi. Woo, what are the ABCDEs of melanoma? So the ABCDEs are asymmetry, border irregularity, color variation, a diameter greater than six millimeters and evolution. Yeah, that's just one of those things. When somebody comes in with a mole, with a mole, do I need to be worried about this? You can kind of go through those A, B, C, D, E's and and decide whether or not it's something that needs a biopsy or it's it's something you can just watch. Um, uh, what are some other outside of those? What are some other concerning findings? Yeah, so if there's any itching, bleeding, or ulceration, those would be concerning features. Okay. And so let's say you, somebody comes to you and you're concerned. You're concerned they may have a melanoma. Um, how do you want to biopsy that? So you need a full thickness excisional biopsy of small lesions with one to two millimeter margins or an incisional or punch biopsy for larger lesions. The key is that uh, you should not do a shave biopsy. Right. No shave biopsies for melanoma. The key there is full thickness biopsy. If they're small, you can do an excisional biopsy, like you say, one to two millimeter margin, see what you got. If they're larger, um, do a punch biopsy so you get that full thickness. One important point uh, they saw in the score questions is that for nodular melanoma, the ABCD criteria does not apply. Um, they don't 
grow in that pattern. And so you can have a aggressive melanoma with, uh, you know, a small uh, nodule. Okay. Kevin, let's say you do your biopsy and it comes back melanoma. It's a clinically local, it's a small clinically localized lesion. There's no clinical evidence of metastasis. Um, what do you want to do to work that patient up before the OR? Yeah. They, I guess they really don't need anything if it's a small localized lesion. Yeah. So if you have, exactly. So you, this is a patient that doesn't really need a lot of imaging or a lot of labs for staging. If they have a lo- small local lesion um, prior to, to resection, and it's, they're clinically negative. There's no clinical evidence of any metastatic disease. No, the, the XL is negative, all that stuff. Uh, they don't need require, or they do not require labs or imaging prior to excision. Uh, what's the role, what is the role of uh, imaging, say, CT or PET-CT um, in melanoma? Uh, so if a patient has advanced or current disease, you definitely want to get a PET-CT. So if, yeah, they have the, if they have clinically positive nodes, um, no, then that patient needs a workup with a PET scan. Um, how about um, a MRI of the brain? You'll hear about that sometimes associated with melanoma. So only if they have neurologic symptoms. Yep. So neurosymptoms uh, would be an indication for getting a brain MRI. Um, and let's say they do have a clinically positive node. What do you want to do with that patient? So just like uh, breast cancer in the axilla, you want to confirm this with an FNA of the node. Uh, okay. Yeah. So if you have a, you know, if you have a palpable node, you want to get an FNA and, and, uh, and try and diagnose that before you decide, uh, your operative plan. Um, there's one other kind of marker that comes up that's, uh, associated with advanced disease. Um, and you want to be, be sure to check, uh, what is it and what is its significance? Uh, so lactate dehydrogenase or LDH and L an elevated LDH is associated with a worse survival. So elevated LDH in patients with advanced disease is associated with a reduced survival. So important to know that. Uh, Woo. Uh, We try and break down the staging of these different cancers into kind of what you need to know and what the important things are. This is one that's important. So walk us through our T stages, uh, or otherwise known as our Breslow depth. Yeah. So T1 is less than one millimeter depth. T2 is one to two millimeters. T3 is two to four millimeters. And T4 is greater than four millimeters. For T-staging, there's also a designator if there is ulceration. So A would be no ulceration, B would be yes ulceration. Yeah, so like a T1B would be less than one millimeter with ulceration. T1A would be less than one millimeter without ulceration. So um, that one, for whatever reason, I think is easy to remember. T1 less than one, T2 one to two, T3 two to four, and T4 greater than four. It kind of lines up. And we'll see in a little bit how that affects our management, but that's very important to know. Um, How about breaking that up in in this kind of some general staging principles. Yeah, stage one to two is local disease with no lymph nodes or METs. Stage three is regional disease with positive nodes or in-transit disease. And stage four is distant metastasis. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect way of breaking it up. So you have your early stage, your local disease. You have your, you know, stage three, which is your regional disease. So you have some involved nodes or those uh, in-transit disease. And stage four is distant uh, METs. what are some findings on biopsy uh, that may be associated with a worse prognosis? So as we've discussed, if it's ulcerated, if there's greater than one mitosis per square millimeter, if there's regression, if there's vertical growth, if there's angiolymphatic invasion, or if there's tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. That regression one, they, is, is a, they like to ask that one because it sounds like it should be a good thing, but regression is associated with a worse prognosis. So yeah, greater than one mitosis, Ulceration, anti-lymphatic invasion, um, vertical growth, regression, all, all bad findings on, on histology. Um, so, Wu, in general, 
what are some uh, some key surgical principles for dealing with melanoma? So you're going to do a wide local excision of the lesion. It's going to go down to and include the underlying fascia. Uh, the margin is going to depend on the lesion depth. So uh, around the lesion, you're going to draw a circumferential one centimeter uh, margin if it's less than one millimeter in depth. And if the uh, depth is greater than one millimeter, two centimeter margins all the way around. Great. And that's kind of what we were talking about before, how you need to know that Breslow, that T stage, that's an effector management. So, you know, less than, um, you know, just general way of thinking about it is less than one millimeter invasion, one centimeter margin, greater than one millimeter, they need a two centimeter margin. So wide localization down to and including the underlying fascia. Okay. So what about that patient that we said had a positive node? How do you want to deal with that, that regional disease, that stage three regional disease? Yeah, so this warrants a complete lymphadenectomy, so removal of all nodes in the involved nodal basin. Okay, and what else do they need? So we mentioned before that if you have you know a local lesion, you can excise it. You don't need any preoperative imaging. So what do those patients need if they have a positive node? A PET scan. Yep, so you need a PET scan for that. Okay. Um, so we would talk to me a little bit about, you say you need a, a complete lymphadenectomy, removal of all, of all nodes in that nodal basin. How do you want to manage a, a patient with a positive inguinal node? How do you want to approach that? Yeah, so this is a little controversial because there is a superficial and deep aspect to this. Uh, so at a minimum, you need the superficial iliofemoral dissection. Uh, the, decision, the decision to perform a deep pelvic node dissection is controversial. If there's radiographic evidence of pelvic nodal metastasis, that would be an absolute indication for pelvic lymphadenectomy. Uh, without radiographic evidence of deep involvement, some would uh, routinely biopsy Cloquet's node and, if positive, proceed to a deep dissection. But most will actually perform the deep dissection if there are any palpable inguinal nodes. Yeah, so I think I think the safest answer is if, if you encounter palpable nodes in the uh, inguinal nodal basin, you do a complete, um, uh, you do a deep dissection and a complete lymphadenectomy. Um, you know, it's fun to it's commonly pimped that Cloquet's node thing, but I think I think if you have a palpable node, even in the superficial, you're going to perform a deep dissection. Uh, Kevin, what patients get uh, a sentinel lymph node? So these are patients that are obviously clinically node negative with a primary tumor depth greater than one millimeter. So it has to be at least a T2 lesion uh, to qualify for a sentinel lymph node. Okay. So what about those? Um, we mentioned that uh, ulceration is, is, is a bad sign. So what about those ones that are less than one millimeter? Let's say they're 0.76 right. um, and they have ulceration. Um, what's... Uh, so that's the... There are two caveats is that if it is if it has ulceration or has a mitotic rate greater than one uh, per square millimeter and it's still less than one millimeter, they still need to get a sentinel lymph node. Yeah, so let's go over that again. Greater than one millimeter invasion definitely gets a sentinel lymph node. Positive cl clinic nodes definitely get a lymphadenectomy. If it's less than one millimeter, um, in the, especially that 0 0.76, 0 0.75 to one millimeter invasion, and they either have ulceration or a high a mitotic rate greater than one, uh, those patients should get a sentinel lymph node as well. Uh, Woo, talk to me a little bit about, uh, so you've done your you've done your resection. Talk to me a little bit about adjuvant therapy um, with melanoma, specifically adjuvant therapy for metastatic disease. Yeah, so, you know, you're going to want to refer the patient for tumor board. Think about uh, involvement in clinical trials. But for the boards, I think the answer right now is, is going to be interferon alpha. Uh, this can be very toxic and difficult to tolerate. Um, 
Also bear in mind that multiple targeted immunotherapies are available, uh, such as BRAF inhibitors. So, you know, where's the surgeon's role in all this? At the initial biopsy and surgical excision, you're going to want to send that for uh, for BRAF testing. Yeah, so um, again, this is a, one of those, there's a lot of research. It's, it's a very exciting time for melanoma these days. There's a lot of targeted immunotherapies. I'm not sure if some of the BRAF inhibitors, if that's made its way to showing up on the boards quite yet, but it's certainly around the corner. Um, so I think right now for the boards for metastatic melanoma, the answer is probably still going to be interferon alpha. Uh, although just be aware that a lot of these patients are getting referred to clinical trials and there's multiple options available to them at this point. Um, how about for uh, non-metastatic disease? Uh, what are your principles of adjuvant um, uh, radiation? Yeah, so think about adjuvant radiation in the patient with more than three positive nodes. Um or a very large nodal metastasis, or even a single node that's uh, greater than three to four centimeters in size. Or if a patient has extracapsular extension or recurrent disease, all those patients uh, should be considered for adjuvant radiation therapy to the nodal basin. Perfect. Okay, I think that's about uh, about good for, for abscite studying, for me at least. Uh, but let's do some quick hits here. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about statistics. Um, this is one of those things that it's hard to cover in an audio format. So unfortunately, there are a few things you need to know. So Kevin, why don't you tell everybody what's important for them to know as far as statistics for the boards, what they need to go look up and study. Right. And we'll cover some of this in our YouTube video uh, that's coming out this weekend. Uh, but you know, just honestly, it's the basics. There's really not much more than the basics, but unfortunately the basics are easy to forget and easy to mess up on the website. So you just need to do a few questions and remind yourself. You need to know what sensitivity is, how to calculate that, what that means, specificity. You need to know uh, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and how that's different from sensitivity and specificity. Um, additionally, uh, you want to know the difference between type one and type two error. So make your boxes and figure these out Write it out, review it right before the absite as you're driving in. Um, additionally, um, you need to know how what study to choose for categorical and non-categorical categorical data. All these things are relatively simple. They're in your review books. Just review them before the absite. It'll definitely save you a few points. Yeah, I think definitely being able to navigate and being familiar with a two-by-two table is going to get you a, a lot of points. Like, as Kevin said, most of the stats questions on the absite are pretty basic, uh, you know, calculating sensitivity, calculating uh, specificity, positive, negative predictive values. Just be able to kind of maneuver a two-by-two tables should get you a couple points. Um, you know, know what the, when you use an ANOVA or when you use a T-test. Um, so, uh, Kevin, something else that comes up and we'll end with this are the different phases of a clinical trial. So what are, what are the four phases of a clinical trial? Phase one, two, three, four, walk us through it. Right. So phase one of a clinical trial is where they just test the medication to see if it causes essentially bad side effects. Is the medication safe? If we give this medication to a patient, is it going to cause uh, some severe reaction? So that's all phase one is. Phase two is, does this medication work for what it's meant to do? Um, so they actually give it to patients and see, does this lower their cholesterol or not? Um, so that's kind of the phase two trial. Phase three is the most expensive and where most uh, of them go to die is phase three, where it's the randomized controlled trial against what is already out there. Where most dr with most drugs go to die, not patients, correct? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, hopefully they figured that out at phase one. Um, so phase three is where most drugs um, don't get passed. It's also the most expensive part of um, coming out with a drug. It's also the best time to invest in a new drug, phase three trial. 
Yes. And so you can definitely consider that. Uh, and so phase three, is, that's in determines if it's better than what is the current standard. And then a phase four is the post-marketing surveillance where, you know, it, it passed phase three. It's better than the other statin out there. And now they're mar- they're monitoring patients um, that are getting this drug to make sure that there's no side effects that weren't seen in the smaller clinical trials. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. That is the website. That's the end of the website review 2018 from Behind the Knife. Um, hopefully you guys got something out of that. So go back, listen to it all again. Keep studying. You got some time and uh, dominate the website. Yep. If you haven't signed up for our mailing list, uh, please look at our show notes and the mailing list link will be in there. Um, and we're going to send out a review of the topics we did not cover um, on this Saturday. If you're listening um, after January 19th, this isn't going to make any sense. Um, and thanks for listening. And please go and subscribe to our podcast. We have a lot of great things coming up in February and March. We're going to take the first two weeks of February off as we're a little bit exhausted making all these reviews. But we have all kinds of new topics and ideas. And actually, that's part of the reason for signing up for our mailing list is we're going to send out a survey where you guys are going to tell us who you want to hear, what kind of topics you want to hear. Do you want to hear more about finances? Do you want to hear more about um, you know surgical reviews? Whatever you guys want, we're going to do it. Um, so sign up for a mailing list so we can get you guys involved and look forward to an awesome 2018 with Behind the Knife. Thank you guys for listening and I hope you dominate the ab site.